everybody. Welcome to Don't Get in the Van. I'm Mandy. And I'm Caitlin. And today we have something a little different for you. Um, Caitlin is going to bring us our first cult case. And I'm very excited to hear this one. So Caitlin, why don't you go ahead and let us know who we're talking about today? All right. So I'm sure most of you have heard the term, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And (laughs) if you've heard that term, then you know that that spawns from Jim Jones and the Jonestown massacre, I guess we could call it. Um, So that's who we're going to be talking about today. Uh, So Jim Jones was actually born James Warren Jones on May 13th, 1931 to James and Loretta Jones. Uh, His father was a disabled World War I veteran who suffered from severe breathing difficulties from a chemical weapons attack. That's awful. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. No, (laughs) what? So, um, their family had a lot of financial difficulties, basically spawning from the fact that his dad was sick all the time, uh, which led to a lot of marital problems between his, between his parents. And in 1934, in the midst of the great depression, they were actually evicted from their home for failure to pay mortgage payments. So their relatives actually purchased a shack. Yes, I said shack (laughs) for them to live in, in the nearby town of Lynn. And uh, the new home where Jones grew up lacked plumbing and electricity. Oh, and in case I forgot to mention, this is, uh, they're in Indiana. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that I left that part out. So my bad. Anyway, they had this house that had no plumbing and electricity and the family tried farming to gain income but it didn't work out because his dad's health just kept deteriorating yeah so when someone has to take care of the animals right well i don't know that it was animal farming i think it might have been like crops crops okay yeah um i don't know 100 don't quote me on that but i i think it was i think it was crops So anyway, because of that, they often lacked adequate food and relied on financial support from their extended family, um, i.e. having their relatives buy them a shack. So they sometimes had to resort to foraging in the nearby forest and fields to supplement their diet, which I know a lot of people hunt and forage Mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think in the 30s, it was way less prevalent. So, you know what I mean? So I, I could see that being rough yeah well for sure especially if the dad has such difficulties then it really is on the mom because jim jones is still like three yeah he's a child yeah he's a child yeah so he can't really do much to help yeah so speaking of his mother according to multiple jones biographers his mother had in quote no natural maternal instincts that's why you should not have a child Uh, Yeah. And frequently neglected her son. Uh, According to them, her pregnancy had been unwanted and she expressed disappointment that becoming a mother, um, a disappointment at becoming a mother and was often bitter and unhappy about their family's financial and social position. When Jones began attending school, his extended family threatened to cut off their financial assistance unless his mother took a job, forcing her to work outside the home. She did, however, become the main breadwinner for the family. Maybe it's good working. for her to get out of the house. I, well, for a woman in the 30s, I would say, yeah, having a job and being able to be financially um, independent is a pretty big deal. Well, and she didn't want her kids, so get away from <laughs> the situation. You know what I mean? I guess that. I'm like, yeah, yeah I guess that would help her out a little bit, too. Huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> so... I'm just saying <laughs> she's just going to make it worse by being so mean to her little boy. You know, you're not wrong. I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, his father was actually hospitalized multiple times due to his illness. And as a result, his parents were frequently absent during his childhood. Yeah. So his aunts and uncles who lived nearby would watch him on occasion. Uh, but a lot of times they, he would just be wandering the streets of town, sometimes even naked with no one paying attention to him at all. That whole thing makes me have anxiety. 
so uncomfortable, right? Like, yeah, I mean, oh my God, if my kid was walking around. Can you imagine the amount of things that could have happened to him, especially in the thirties with the amount of like serial killers and like predators, like, are you oh, kidding? Anything could have happened. Yikes. And seeing oh. a naked little boy, like he's like running away. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you kidding? But oh. Oh, I can't. Yeah. You would think someone would grab him up. Well, many women in <laughs> Lynn felt very sorry for him. And he was frequently invited into the homes of his neighbors who provided him with meals, clothing, and other gifts. Yeah. So um, one woman in particular, Myrtle Kennedy, who was the wife of a pastor of the local Nazarene church, developed a very special attachment to him. Okay. And he often stayed overnight in the Kennedy's home and they cared for him. Um, Kennedy was known in the community for her religious zeal and took Jones to church multiple times a week. She gave him a Bible and encouraged him to study it and taught him to follow the holiness code of the Nazarene church. Okay. He was able to quote the Bible. He was able to quote Bible passages from a really early age. Yes. I mean, he was going multiple times a week. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. For anybody. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. So as he grew older, he attended uh, services at most of the churches in Lynn, often going to multiple churches each week. Yeah, and wow. he was also baptized in several of them. That's dedication. So he's going to a lot of different churches, being baptized in each one of them. That's is, are you supposed to do that? <laughs> you know, I don't know because I'm not very religious, so I'm not sure right. if that's like a no-no, like I guess to it, be baptized in multiple religions or not. Yeah. Or do multiple religions do baptizing? Baptism? I, I mean, guess they do. I think um they do, but like different types of it so maybe he was just like i'm gonna try this one and then this one and this one and yeah. they probably just didn't have as big of like i don't know rules at this point feeling it all out seeing what he wants seeing which one he wants to take on that's right <laughs> so he began to develop a desire to become a preacher as uh as a youth and started to practice preaching in private yeah, of course his mother claimed that she was disturbed when she caught him imitating the pastor of the local uh apostolic Pentecostal church and she unsuccessfully attempted to prevent him from attending the church's services. I mean, it's not really weird for him to, if he wants to be a priest, just like pretend like he's the priest. Exactly. That's weird. She just doesn't like her kid. Yeah. She just, yeah. She's very, a lot of disdain for him. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Poor, poor kid. Yeah. Um, so in his early teenage years, he actually spent several months evangelizing in his community on behalf of the local Pentecostal church. Okay. Although they had sympathy for him because of his poor circumstances, his neighbors reported that he was an unusual child who was obsessed with religion and death. <laughs> um, he regularly visited a casket manufacturer in Lynn That's and held weird. and held mock funerals for roadkill that he had collected yeah that's strange behavior i mean it, it, that is unusual okay first of all these people are allowing him to hold a mock funeral in these caskets because that's kind of what i just got from that with roadkill yeah so let's take maggot infested roadkill that's squished on the road and then stick it in one of the caskets and then guess what let's sell that casket for a burial later this is what i'm saying like they're just gonna <laughs> sell this used roadkill casket to somebody's yeah. family like what yeah that's gross i mean maybe i'm misinterpreting the sentence but i mean i interpret that's what it exactly i got from it okay yeah. <laughs> it's weird maybe like, they put what? well maybe they put something down and then i don't know but that's still disgusting i don't know Either way. Strange. So <laughs> when he could not get any children to attend his funerals, he <laughs> performed the services alone. Um, he claimed that he had been given special powers, including the ability to fly. To prove his powers to the other children, he once jumped from the roof of a building and fell, breaking his arm. My God, child. I was just <laughs> going to say, I hope he didn't try and fly. Never mind. He did. Despite the fall, though, <laughs> he continued to claim that he had special powers. Of course. Because he's in denial. So uh, one Jones biographer actually suggested that he developed his unusual interest because he found it difficult to make friends, which I can see considering sure. he was young, his parents are never home and he's kind of a weirdo and nobody wants to hang out with a weirdo. Except for Myrtle. I mean, she 
Yeah, she did. That was that was it. But that was it. Like that. This older woman. But she's an old lady. Like that's. Yeah, he doesn't want to. He wants to be like with friends. Right. But she kind of his own age. Yeah, she got him like during his very formative years, though, and helped him develop into this unusual individual character. And then, yeah, and then it's like. you don't want to go to a freaking like roadkill funeral as a child. And if it was my kid, I'd be like, no, you're not going to that. That's weird. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Yikes. I guess you could look at it as being kind of sweet that he like wants to put this on for these roadkill, like these poor animals died and now he wants to like put on a funeral service for them. But his like awkward obsession with it is what the weird part of it is. Yeah. The way he's going about it is, because it's really just all about him wanting to he just wants to have friends have power and friends and like present this so anyway although his strange religious practices stood out the most to his neighbors they also reported that he misbehaved in more serious ways he frequently stole candy from merchants in town his mother was obviously required to pay for his thefts Uh uh-oh and he regularly used offensive profanity, <laughs> commonly greeting his friends and neighbors by saying, good morning, you son of a bitch, <laughs> or hello, you dirty bastard. Okay, I think that is so funny. I mean, it's not appropriate, but it's hilarious. It is hilarious. It I mean, is absolutely hilarious. I mean, it seems like if someone was- Good morning, say- you son of a bitch. <laughs> okay, like, so- what? I'd be interested to know how old he is because like a little kid sometimes will say it like really inappropriate things then maybe that would come out but if he's like 13 he's like good morning you like asshole or whatever you know it's like what and then of course he's unusual he's calling his neighbors a son of a bitch so which is not that nice it's funny I mean when you're young yeah you definitely want to use profanity because it's cool sure. yeah but yeah but he's, a yikes. Little, he's a little odd Um, (laughs) at different times he would put other children into life-threatening situations Uh and tell them he was guided by the angel of death now that's just not right that's now we're getting weird Mm -hmm. uh in later years he claimed that he had performed numerous sacrilegious pranks at the churches he attended as a child and he claimed that he stole the pentecostal pastor's bible and put cow manure on acts 238 he also claimed that at a Catholic church, he replaced the holy water with a cup of his own urine. I mean, that is all very, very bad behavior. <laughs> I, it yikes. does also kind of sound like a young boy type things to do, though, doesn't it? Like yeah, a little, I mean, like yeah. a little like young boy shithead kind of thing to do. Like it does kind of sound like it I does. guess when you lay all these things out together. Yes. Um, but on their own, this is like normal kid shit. I feel well, like. And he's on his own, so he's trying to get attention. Yeah, he's acting out, right? 100%. So it's like, yeah. hmm, what's going to happen if I put manure in this Bible? And yeah. Like, something's going to happen. Or replace the holy water with my urine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, very naughty behavior, but not completely like unheard of. Are you supposed to drink the holy water or are you just no. supposed to like, like <laughs> dip your finger? Is that the one that you dip your fingers in and you yeah. do like the... Yeah, yeah. So basically they're just like, putting piss on their face yes squirt it or like what do you want to call that motion flicking flicking urine on their faces a little bit yep yeah drawing the cross you know with some pee oh that's right yeah okay i don't i'm not i'm sorry i'm not religious (laughs) (laughs) i grew up catholic so i can help you with that one look all i know about holy water is that you can throw it on a vampire okay yeah i know that much it might not work but we could try we will try it Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, let's kind of talk about this misbehavior a little bit. Okay. His mother beat him with a, le- with a leather belt in order to punish his misbehavior, which I'm not going to say I believe in corporal punishment. I don't know <laughs> how you feel about this subject because you actually have children. I don't have any children of my own. Right. But I grew up with corporal punishment and I got to tell you, I think that it definitely um, taught me a lot of valuable lessons. And had I just been, 
I don't know. I, you know what? Let's not get into this argument right now. But anyway, um, yeah, she used to beat him with a leather belt. We could talk about this at the end. Let's not, uh, this yeah. will be a long one. All right. So um, when World War II broke out, he became enamored with Adolf Hitler and yeah. the Nazi party. He was he was intrigued by their pageantry, their unit, their unity, and the absolute power wielded by Hitler. Of course, because he wants absolute power. Exactly. So the people in his community found his idolization of Nazi Germany disturbing, obviously. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he played dictator with the other children, forcing them to goose step in unison (laughs) and hitting the children who failed to obey his orders. One childhood acquaintance actually recalled that Jones gave the Nazi salute and shouted hail Hitler when he met German prisoners of war passing through their community en route to a detention facility. (laughs) This child. He's just, yeah. Again, sounds like some little shithead little boy shit to do, Mm -hmm. but. But he's like, he's Lord. He's escalating just a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I would say, yeah. Yeah. So he developed an intense interest in religion and social doctrines, and he became a voracious reader who studied Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. So he's trying to be a shitster. He spent hours in the community library, and he brought books home so he could read them in the evenings. Although he studied different political systems, he did not really pick up on any radical political views in his youth. Okay. So um, commenting on his childhood, Jones stated, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile. I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions, There was some kind of school performance and everybody's parent was there, but mine, I'm standing there alone. Always was alone. That's sad. I mean, that's nine years old. That's really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So Tom uh, Ritterman, a biographer of Jones wrote that Jones attraction to religion was strongly influenced by his desire for family. Yeah, for sure. Obviously. Yeah. And he wants a big family. (laughs) Yeah, he does. In 1942, the Kennedy family moved from Lynn to Richmond, Indiana, for the summer, and Jones uh, visited them. They attended a summer religious convention at a nearby Pentecostal church, participating in services four times a week. That's a lot. That is a lot. (laughs) Uh, When he returned to Lynn in the autumn, he offended his community by giving explicit explanations of sexual reproduction to young children. Uh Many people in Lynn demanded that Joan's mother curtail his behavior, but she refused. She's like, I have nothing to do with this. (laughs) She's like, I don't know. It's okay. Let him do his thing. Yeah. So the situation caused many of the other parents to keep their children away from him. And by the time he entered high school, he had become an outcast among his peers and was increasingly disliked by the members of his community. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, this poor kid. Uh, So in high school, he continued to stand out and he enjoyed debating his teachers. Oh, no. But he was also a good student. Well, that's good. That part's good. Yeah. He developed a habit of refusing to answer anyone who spoke to him first. He only spoke, <laughs> he only spoke to people when he initiated, when he initiated conversations with them himself. So super power trip, super power trip. Yeah. He was known to wear his Sunday church attire every day of the week. And while his classmates dressed more casually, he's mm-hmm. just decked out. In his Sunday best. In his Sunday best. <laughs> it's not I helping mean, him out in the friend department, I'm it, sure. It's not, no. I mean, there's only so much I can feel bad for this person at this point. Well, it gets worse because <laughs> he, <laughs> he almost always carried his Bible with him. 
and his religious views alienated him from most of his classmates. Sure. But he frequently confronted them for drinking beer, smoking, and dancing. Uh, and at times, he would interrupt other young people's events and insist they read the Bible with him. I mean, that's not going to get you any, like, cool points, dude. No. <laughs> Honey. Really. I mean, you know, if you don't even like smoking and drinking, okay, what about dancing? Why can't you dance? Yeah, why are they not allowed to dance? It's just goofiness. I mean, in the 30s, they thought like dirty dancing was like what's shaking their dresses around. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they weren't grinding or doing anything no. crazy like the kids these days do. Right? I could, oh my God, could you imagine if he was like no. these days, he Yikes. would think everybody was a Satan worshiper. Absolutely. Everybody. So this, yeah, this has been even worse. Yikes. That's a whole nother conversation we can get into on a later (laughs) date, but just about just this new generation and the way things fucking go now. I just don't even, anyway. Yeah. I'm freaked out about my kids getting any older. Oh boy. Yep. I'm, I'm scared for you. My, I mean, my niece too, you know, like, dude, my niece just turned one. Like, how is that going to go bad? Like how, you know, like how, like when I'm, when I'm in my forties and she turns 18, like what, what are things going to be like then? Scary. I don't even want to know. No. Jones disliked playing sports because he hated losing. Go figure. (laughs) So he served as a coach on sports teams that he organized with younger children. Yeah. So in 1945, he organized an entire league of teams for a summer baseball tournament. And while he was attending a baseball game in Richmond, Jones was bothered by the treatment of African-Americans who attended the game. The events at the uh, ball game brought discrimination against African-Americans to Jones' attention and influenced his strong aversion to racism, which I applaud him that, for. Yes, that's great. That's good. His father was associated with the Indiana branch of the Ku Klux Klan. That's not good. Which had become very popular in Depression-era Indiana. And he recounted how he and his father argued about the issue of race. And he also stated that he did not speak to his father for many, many years after he refused to allow one of Joan's black friends to enter his house. Well, you know, and his dad feels like shit all the time, has massive like breathing issues. But he's like, but I have time to join the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Yeah. Priorities, dude. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. God. Very skewed. Yeah, he's an ass. So the unhappy marriage of Jones's parents came to an end when the couple finally separated in 1945 and eventually divorced. Jones relocated to Richmond with his mother, where he continued his high school education. And his mother lost the financial support of their relatives following the divorce. So to to support himself, he began working as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital in 1946. Interesting. All right. Don't, don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Me either with his past. I'm a little concerned, but let's see what happens. Jones was well-regarded by the senior management. The staff members later recalled that Jones exhibited disturbing behavior towards some patients and coworkers. Um, He did begin dating a nurse in training named Marceline Baldwin while he was working at Reed hospital. Hmm. Okay. So that's one good thing possibly. Maybe. In December 1948, he graduated from Richmond High School early with honors, and he relocated to Bloomington, Indiana in November of 1948, where he attended Indiana University Bloomington with the intention of becoming a doctor, but changed his mind shortly thereafter. Okay. During this time at the university, Jones was impressed by a speech which Eleanor Roosevelt delivered about the plight of African-Americans, and he began to espouse support for communism and other radical political views for the first time. You know, he's just going all out. He's like religion and politics. You're like, oh, oh no. God. let's put the two together. Sounds like an explosive combination. <laughs> right. So Jones and Marceline Baldwin continued their relationship while he attended college and the couple married on June 12th of 1949. Their first home was in Bloomington where Marceline worked in a nearby hospital while Jones attended college and Marceline was a Methodist and she and Jones immediately fell into arguments about church, obviously. Jones insisted on attending Bloomington's full gospel tabernacle, but eventually, I don't know why tabernacle cracks me up. It's a funny name. It is a funny name. (laughs) But but eventually compromised and began attending a local Methodist church, 
on most Sunday mornings while attending Pentecostal churches, Sunday evenings and weekdays. Okay. So they're married, right? They're married. Why didn't they talk about their crazy church shit before they got married? Then all of a sudden, oh, I, like, you know, I'm the sure they clearly knew about this before they got right? married. I mean, like, he's like Mr. Religion. So he I'm, goes like every fucking day. How would they not? Yeah. And then it's like, now they're like, nah. but then he of course gave in because, well, know. he's such a narcissist. I think he probably thought she would just switch over and do oh, whatever she sure. wanted. Yeah. But instead he's like, ah, shit. Now I got to go to the Methodist church too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'll go every day. Yeah. Fuck it. <laughs> So Jones' strong opposition to the Methodist Church's racial segregationist practices continued the strain in their marriage, uh, which this makes sense, I guess. Well, this part does. Yeah. Yeah. So through the years, their relationship was affected by Jones's insecurity. He often felt the need to test Marceline's love and loyalty, and at times he used sadistic methods to do so. Yeah, no. I didn't get into what these sadistic methods were, but I kind of wish I'd looked it up because I'm really curious what he was doing. Um, but what a dick, right? Yeah. It's the I mean, power We trip can only again. imagine. Yeah. I mean, we can only imagine what he was doing considering what he does in the future. So yeah. Thanks. In 1950, the couple unofficially adopted Marceline's nephew, Ronnie, who they cared for over a four-year period. After attending Indiana University for two years, the couple relocated to Indianapolis in 1951 Jones took night classes at Butler University to continue his education, and uh, 10 years after enrolling, he finally earned a degree in secondary education in 1961. Okay. So so education is his, that's what he came up with. Yeah. So it was going to be priest, doctor, educator educator okay so doubling back to 1951 again when he was 20 years old he began attending gatherings of communist party of the communist party usa in indianapolis all right well there you go (laughs) that's gonna start something yeah so during during the mccarthy hearings jones and his family faced harassment from government authorities in one event jones mother was harassed by fbi agents in front of her co-workers because she had attended an event with her son Jones also became frustrated with the persecution of open and accused communists in the U.S., especially during the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Reflecting back on his participation in the Communist Party, Jones said that he asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was infiltrate the church. So he decided that the best way to spread his ideas would be that of a socialist because socialists believe that everything in society is made by the cooperative efforts of the people and the citizens. So he obviously felt like socialism was like a little bit more like uh, palpable than like communism, you know? So he's Mm -hmm. like, hmm, yeah. So his message was to infiltrate the church and both socialism and communism place great value on creating a more equal society and removal of class privilege. A Methodist superintendent whom he met through American Communist Party helped him into the church. So there was his in. That's his in. And it's through the Methodist church. I know. What? So in 1952, Jones became a student pastor in Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indianapolis. And he soon left this church as it barred him from integrating African-Americans into his congregation. Okay. In 1954, Jansby... Jones began his own church in a rented space in Indianapolis, at first naming it the Community Unity Church, which doesn't roll (laughs) off the tongue. (laughs) Not the best name. So Jones and Temple members knowingly faked healings using chicken livers and other animal tissue they claimed to be cancerous tissues removed from the body at their church. They founded increased faith and generated financial resources to help the poor and finance the church. Of course it did, but it's also absolute bullshit and completely against what your religion should be about. Correct. Yeah. Um, The documentary that I watched about it had quite a few of his uh, previous followers or temple members on there that had survived and talking about things. And, um, in one instance, he had his one of his aides who was like a much older woman mm-hmm. 
position herself in the middle of the crowd in a wheelchair and act like she couldn't walk and she had back issues and whatever. And then he commanded her to walk and she rises and slowly walks. And by the end of it, she's running and everybody in the church is just going ape shit. <laughs> she's running. She took running it too far. Too far. <laughs> but he did that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. Like he would, he would plant people within the church and like already have this pre-planned like thing, you know? Right. So Yeah. Well, he began referring to himself as God, not a God, the God. Oh, sure. So his power trip took him all the way to being God. And (laughs) this is not good. That escalated real quick, real fast. Yep. (laughs) So in 19... So in 1956, Jones bought his first church building located in a racially mixed Indianapolis neighborhood. He named his church Wings of Deliverance, but later in the same year renamed it the People's Temple Full Gospel Church, or the People's Temple for short, and his healings and clairvoyant revelation acts attracted many spiritualists. And that's how he's paying for everything is with this bullshit. He's like, here, I healed you. Would you at least stick that basket? Would you like to donate to the church? Yeah, can you give us some money? <laughs> so let's talk about the People's Temple. Okay. Their message was that combined elements of Christianity with communist and socialist ideology with an emphasis on racial equality. So, I mean, I like the racial equality thing, but we'll get to it. And then I can talk a little bit more about how I feel. (laughs) Yeah. So there were roughly three to 5,000 members at any given time. I mean, that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And with that amount of people, I do have some statistics here as far as percentages of the demographics, demographics that we have. So black people made up approximately 70%. So it was 45% black females, 23% black males, 13% white females, 11% white males, 3% mixed females, 1% mixed males, other females, and other males. So trying to have this very like integrated church is primarily an African-American church in an African-American neighborhood. So who, how is this um, diverse? Do you know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. Like Like we're trying to get, he's promoting that he's all diverse and, but yet he literally specifically goes into a primarily African-American neighborhood and opens Mm -hmm. a church to bring in as many African-Americans as he can. Right. Which it's, (laughs) which is great. But at the same time, like you're promoting that you're doing um, racial equality and there's way more african-americans than there are any other race not even just white people mexicans asians like any kind of race like and so he's not trying to branch out either how many white people are there there were 13 percent women and 11 percent males so those are probably his friends (laughs) probably yeah well okay so the actual like number would be 460 females 231 males these are uh, African-Americans. And then gotcha. for white people, it would be 138 females to 108 males, mixed females, 27, mixed males, 12, 13, uh, and 10 of the other races. That's not very diverse. Sir. At all. <laughs> at, at, at all. It's almost yeah. double the amount of black females to white fe- actually it's triple the amount of black females to white females and it's double the amount of black males to white males right so he should have instead of being a cheapskate because of course the african-american neighborhood that he's chosen is an impoverished neighborhood we're in the 30s right or no we're not what are we in the 40s sorry. uh the 50s, the 50s. okay yes. still we have not had civil rights. So we right. are still having like this, this neighborhood that he's selecting. So it's cheaper, right? So he's like, hmm, where can I get the most bang for my buck? Probably got a big ass place because he can fit 5,000 people in it. But uh, yeah, are the white people going to come to this quote, scary black neighborhood? Come on, dude, you're not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. It's all stereotypes going on here. I agree. 
So he organized large religious conventions with other Pentecostal pastors that drew 11,000 attendees. That's a lot of people. Holy shitballs. That's scary, actually. Mm-hmm. In February of 1960, they opened a soup kitchen for the poor and expanded their social services to include rent assistance, job placement services, free canned goods, clothing, and coal for winter heating. I mean, that all sounds very nice. It does. But? But I feel like he has ulterior motives. Absolutely. In 1965, he moved his group to Northern California. And in 1971, he moved again to San Francisco, where the headquarters was established. I mean, dude's got a headquarters now. (laughs) Headquarters. So by the mid-1970s, in addition to its locations in Redwood Valley, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, the temple had established satellite congregations in almost a dozen other California cities. That's huge. Yes. The temple used 10 to 15 Greyhound-type bus cruisers to transport members up and down California freeways each week for recruitment and fundraising. Jones always rode in bus number seven, which contained armed guards in a special section lined with protective metal plates he told members that the temple would not bother scheduling a trip unless it could knit a hundred thousand dollars and the temple's goal for annual net income from bus trips was a million i hate all of that i just hate he's it. very like, clearly financially driven 100 percent. yeah this is not just about equality this is no. about him making some fucking money absolutely 100 percent so let's let's talk about a little bit about this bus number seven, because he actually had a section in the back of the bus mm-hmm. where he would, I would like to say lure, but really he would just kind of like demand that if he saw a pretty male or female in his congregation, he would tell them <clears throat> to go to the back of the bus. And when he'd go back there, he would proceed to tell them that they were beautiful or whatever and he was going to show them how beautiful they were and then essentially rape them and he's also he's god so this is this is like they're not going to do anything about it they're one they're scared they don't know what to do and two they're like all right well what do i do he also has armed guards and shit so at this point people are already starting to kind of realize that like if you leave the church or if you don't agree with him like it's probably not going to go super well for you because he's a control freak right but you know a lot of these people that are these cult leaders when they when the women are brought to him or whatnot and are like hey like this is a gift because he is god and he is offering to be with you like wow like what an honor you know what i mean it's so messed up agreed one of the women on the documentary that i watched was one of these women and she was explaining like how it happened basically like He came up to her and was like, you're so beautiful. You just don't even know how beautiful you are. Um, meet me at the back of the bus or whatever in like 10 minutes. And she goes back there and then he pretty much like, you know, shuts the door and like, just tells her like, yeah, you're so beautiful and you don't know how beautiful you are, but I'm going to, I'm going to show you. And then just proceeds to just start having sex with her. And she's just laying there like, um, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, yeah, what do I no. even do about this? Like, she probably didn't feel like she could do anything. Right. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. And like you said, there's armed guards. I'd be like, I don't even know. No, yeah, I don't fucking know. It's I mean, I would be in this situation because I'm not going to fall into a cult. But, you know. <laughs> but what an intimidating situation for these people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. And what does he think he's the Pope? Like riding around in a little like thing that's like a protective bubble? Like, sap. He thinks he's something. That's yeah, for sure. I obviously don't feel bad for him anymore. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. <laughs> But yeah, let's get into Jonestown in Guyana. So in the 1970s, his church was accused by the media of financial fraud, physical abuse of its members, and mistreatment of children. Mm -hmm. Jim Jones became became paranoid due to the mounting criticism, so he decided to invite his congregation to move with him to Guyana, which was a small English-speaking country in South America, to build a socialist agricultural utopia. Jones, who had long believed the U.S. was in danger of imminent nuclear holocaust, had been searching for a place where his church could be safe during an apocalyptic event. How are you safe during an apocalyptic event? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. 
Like that's the end of not the United States. That's what the do they? World. What do they? What is the term for people who have like underground bunkers and stuff? What do they call them? Doomsday preppers or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I mean, he essentially is like a doomsday yeah. prepper, but like on a whole nother fucking level. Like yes. a whole like he's not just like trying to prepare for like the no. worst. He's literally just like batshit crazy. Absolutely batshit <laughs> crazy. Um. Basically, a couple times there were some people, there was like a group of females, young females that were in his congregation that had kind of realized that he was just giving out so many, um, what is the word I'm looking for when you say something, uh, and then you turn around and say that like, that's not hypocrite, like hypocrisy. Yes. Yes. Thank you. He cannot <laughs> think of anything right now. He, um, they basically realized that he was just a complete hypocrite and that everything that he said, he wasn't necessarily following. There was all these inconsistencies and things that he was saying, and they didn't really believe with all of things that were happening. And so they started kind of talking and they started uh-huh. talking to media and stuff and they ended up leaving the church and he kind of freaked out I'm and sure. he came up with this term called defector for anybody who was a quote unquote traitor to the church who would leave and say anything that was not positive about the church was a defector. And basically these people were worried that he was going to have his quote unquote thugs hunt them down and kill them because he was such a fucking freak about losing any family members. Right. Okay. My God. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, you know, we just talked about the fact that he's worried about apocalypse and all these things. And he also, you know, the Holocaust uh, quite a few times in his congregation, one of his sermons would be like, you know, they'll never take us into concentration camps. We'll all, all, we'll all fucking die before that happens. That'll never fucking happen to my people, blah, blah, blah. But yet he comes up with Jonestown, which is essentially. Yeah. (laughs) So the population grew to over 900 people by the late by late 1978 and those who moved there were promised a tropical paradise free from the supposed wickedness of the outside world well to no surprise of ours jonestown did not turn out to be a paradise followers were expected to devote themselves completely to the church's utopian project they turned over their personal wealth worked long hours of unpaid labor for the church and often broke contact with their families They were expected to raise their children within the commune, and as a show of commitment, People's Temple members were asked to sign, People's Temple members were asked to sign blank sheets of paper so that he could turn around and use them for potential blackmail if they ever tried to leave the church. So such bullshit all these cult members i swear to god he could basically write anything in there like false testimonials that they'd molested their children Mm -hmm. um that they'd stolen money that they were cheating on their spouses i mean that they you know they could he could just write whatever he wanted on there and just blackmail them into anything the amount of manipulation he was very manipulative and people were very scared to leave the church absolutely because because they knew that he was doing these things yeah Yeah. They're like, what are like, you feel like you're, you're between a rock and a hard place. You can't do anything. Yeah. What are you going to do? So you're just existing. So members worked long days in the fields and were subject to harsh punishments if they questioned Jones authority. So speaking of the punishments before they even got to Jonestown in the people's temple, he would do these things too, where if you did something that he didn't like, he would turn everybody in the congregation on you and have them basically beat you up in the middle of the congregation in front of everybody. And there were quite a few um, sound bites on this documentary that I watched of him like snickering and laughing because he was just eating. He loved it. He was egging it on and he loved it. Just watching, watching young people, old people, anybody just getting the shit beat out of them by everybody in the congregation who all is just like, going after him. And a lot of these people are like, you know, we just have to figure out what we're doing wrong and what we can do better for him and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, that's how fucking like twisted and like in their brains, he'd gotten to the point that they're thinking that they're the problem. Of course. Something wrong. Ugh, that's sick. Yeah. So the church delivered Jones rambling monologues to Jonestown's inhabitants by megaphone as they worked. 
It's awful. Yeah. You can't Uh, escape. Dude, on this documentary, there were tons of sound bites and you would just hear him, attention, attention, attention. And then he would just start like rambling on about a bunch of bullshit. And everybody's just like, (laughs) what the fuck? Like nothing that has anything to do with fucking anything. He's just talking to talk. That dude loved to hear himself talk. Yes, he did. In the evenings, they attended mandatory propaganda classes and Jones' writ was enforced by armed guards called the Red Brigade. So his thugs had a name, the Red Brigade. God, this was literally from morning until, until night. night. It's Sometimes just- he'd make them up, wake them up in the middle of the night and make them go out there and fucking like have drills and things. God. Just like it was all a power trip. It was like his, sure. he, he just wanted to be in control of every fucking aspect of everything. Sounds like a nightmare. Speaking of, their passports were confiscated, their letters home were censored, and members were encouraged to inform in basically to tattletale on one another and forced to attend lengthy late night meetings. The members were brainwashed, armed, and would kill for Jones. As a form of punishment, there was a pit that members were placed in that could that they could not climb out of, and they had to wait to be removed once their punishment was over. That's there awful. were also yeah there were also practice drills where members would drink poison and if they resisted they would be uh they would be forced and so, these were called white knights so not real poison just no it was Kool-Aid um but oftentimes he would ask them you know like would you guys die for me like would we die for the cause whatever right and if they there was a couple times where his inner circle before he even started doing these white nights, he had pulled just his inner circle in mm-hmm. and basically had everybody drink this Kool-Aid. And then after it was like, Oh, by the way, you guys just drank poison. You have an hour to live. And everybody started freaking the fuck out. And they were like, what? And then right. he was like, it's just a joke, but I'm glad to know that you guys would, you know, like just follow me to whatever fucking I ask you to do. You'll do it kind of a thing. And they right. were all just like, holy shit it's gonna secretly fucking poison us and like right what (laughs) oh my god so he practiced with his inner circle before he even moved on to the entire congregation um yeah oh so on november 17th of 1978 u.s congressman leo ryan who was investigating claims of abuse within the temple visited jonestown along with a small group of journalists Jones would not allow Ryan to visit the compound, and it took three days of negotiations with the temple lawyers to get to visit the temple. During the visit, musicians played in the pavilion, and some seemed almost comatose. Um, Jones seemed drugged, and his pill addiction was definitely peaking, because that's another thing that was going on. During the People's Temple, he started using drugs, and it became very prevalent in his daily life and he definitely started going way off the rails um so he's like slurring while he's making them work in a field listening to his megaphone shit right and everybody's just kind of like what in the fuck is this dude talking about (laughs) um a note so during this time when the congressman came you know, they had that whole first night where everybody's like putting on this big show. Mm-hmm. And they even said like a couple of his aides were like, you know, we kind of felt like they were putting on some kind of show because right. once they got all done with it, he gets up, Congressman Ryan gets up and he starts giving a speech and he's like, you know, we came here thinking that you guys were in trouble and that we needed to help you. Everybody seems to be very happy here. You guys seem to have a really good thing going. Um, I'm really glad to see that everybody is doing so well, whatever. And like in unison, the entire fucking congregation gets up and claps for an unreasonable amount of time. And that's when him and his people are like, okay, this feels very staged. Something's wrong. Something is fucking up. Yeah. So the next day, journalists are like talking to the members and a note was passed to one of the journalists that said, please help us get out of Jonestown. The next day, the journalists again visited the temple and attempted to talk to as many residents as possible to determine if the residents wanted to be there or not. Um, Some said they were happier than ever, but others pleaded to leave and asked the crew to help them. Well, they actually went up to Jones and showed him this letter and said, hey, the journalist went up to Jones and said, hey, some of your congregation have passed us notes. Here's one. 
of them saying they're not happy here and they want to go home. Good idea, dumbass. Yeah. What the fuck? First of all. Second of all, Jones, of course, is like, well, what do you want me to say? Like, people are going to lie about shit. Like, what the fuck do you want from me? People lie. I can't do anything about people lying. And it's like, uh, no, they're not fucking lying. lying. They're serious, but you're fucking delusional. And on massive pills and a power trip. Uh, Yeah. So Jones became super angry because of this. I'm sure. He was pissed. And one of his lieutenants attacked Congressman Ryan with a knife. My God. He escaped, but then Jones ordered Ryan and the journalists to be ambushed and killed at the airstrip as they attempted to leave. So basically, after that happened, they all managed to get together and to get to the airstrip. And they thought everything was going to be okay because they were on their way to the airstrip. Well, they get there. They're kind of sitting around waiting. There's only one plane. And now they've got six additional people that are trying to leave these defectors that want to leave with them. And so they're like, we don't have enough room. So they call and they're like, Hey, can we get another plane down here? And they're like, sure. It's going to take a little bit, you know, we'll send another one. So they're sitting there waiting on the second plane to come here. The second plane shows up. And as soon as it basically lands, they see a little ways out that there's a red like tractor and trailer coming. Yeah. So the red tractor trailer pulls up and his red brigade pops out and just starts point blank shooting at everybody. That's so fucked up. So Congressman Ryan gets killed. Um, A couple of journalists and one defector. Uh, A bunch of people were injured. A few people were able to escape by running into the jungle. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a massacre. And basically the Congressman was shot 45 times. I mean, that's incredible overkill, incredible overkill. Four of the journalists were killed. And like I said, one of the Jonestown escapees were murdered as they were waiting to board. 10 of the journalists escapees were able to survive as they hid under the plane, but they were very injured. Um, Some played dead and others ran into the jungle. So like I said, like some of them were able to escape, but for the most part, like one of the journalists was saying, you know, I got shot a couple of times. So I basically laid down and kind of covered my head with my arm and just played dead, hoping that they would just think I was dead and would just leave. Right. They end up popping back in the trailer and driving off. And then all these injured people are like, holy fuck. What do we do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the people at the airstrip are like, uh, that plane's been sitting there for a minute and they haven't said anything like something's off. Something bad is happening. Like something yeah. is gone wrong. Yeah. So back in Jonestown, Jones commands everyone to gather in the main pavilion and um, commit what he termed a revolutionary act. The youngest members of the temple were the first to die as parents and nurses use syringes to drop a potent mix of cyanide, sedatives, and powdered fruit juice into the children's throats or inject that into their arms. That's disgusting. It is very disgusting. Adults then lined up to drink the fruit-flavored drink laced with cyanide while armed guards surrounded the pavilion. Anyone who resisted was forced to drink the poison, injected with it, or guards would just shoot them with crossbows in the back. (laughs) None of these options you know, are good. Like, none, not a single one. No. In, in the documentary that I watched, there were, like I said, a lot of sound clips. And one of them was him during this thing saying, where are the vats, the vats, the vats, where are the vats? Cause the vats had like the Kool-Aid with the oh, fucking yeah. cyanide in it. And he's just like calling for them. So the next day, two small planes arrived to evacuate the survivors for medical treatment. The next day is when the plane shows Gosh. planes show up to take them away. I mean, think about that. That's agony, you know? Yeah, they've been like some of them have been severely injured. I'm surprised they even survived waiting a whole day for somebody right. to come pick them up. That's awful. Fred Francis, an NBC news correspondent, needed to get to Jonestown. He found the plane with the bullet holes and paid the pilot $8,000 to fly him to Jonestown and $2,000 for no other planes to fly any other journalists into Jonestown because he wanted to be the only one. Yeah, he wants the scoop. Yeah. Once he landed, he hitched a ride on an army helicopter to Jonestown. And from the helicopter, they saw a quilt of some sort on the ground. The helicopter made another pass and they realized the quilt they saw was actually 909 bodies of men, women, and 304 children. That's awful. Just lying dead. I can't even imagine that 
I mean, I've seen the picture, but I can't even imagine being right above that and then realizing what that is. Yeah. I mean, on the documentary I watched, they showed the actual aerial footage and it really does look like a quilt. Yeah. It's disturbing. Um, Jones was found with a bullet hole to the head and it's not a hundred percent known whether it was self-inflicted or inflicted by somebody else, but just knowing him and how much of a narcissist he is, I feel like he probably did it himself. Well, and what a pussy way to get out. Cause I mean, he just, he's like, drink, drink cyanide, feel horrible before you die, yeah. but I'll just take, I'm gonna take the, the easy way. Yeah. I'll just shoot myself in the head. Yeah. Whatever. I'm an asshole. Yeah. Total asshole. I mean, most people are pretty sure that it was self-inflicted. We just don't know hundred percent. So I don't want to definitively say that it was, but. Or Seems he's even likely. a bigger puss and he had somebody else do it for him. God. Oh, yeah. So a tape was found at Jonestown showing his last message to his people. He was pleading with his followers to partake in revolutionary suicide and the children were the first to die. Jones could be heard pleading and urging his followers to follow his lead as the tape ran out. Mm-hmm. So I am going to play that for you guys, but I want to get through it and we'll just end it with... Um, not the whole thing because it's like 45 minutes long, yeah, but I'll, long. I'll, I'll play a little clip of it. So you can just hear his rambling bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Him trying to like convince these poor mothers that you're saving your children, give them poison. It's like, that's so yeah. fucked up. Yeah. So the aftermath, the Guyanese government wanted to no part in the burial. Um, so the U S military was forced to be the only organization that was able to handle mass casualty recovery. Recovery workers used waterproof canvas body bags and coffin-like metal transport containers on U.S. military helicopters to shuttle the dead between the isolated deep jungle and Guyana's capital. The workers reported the staggering number of children they saw was the most disturbing thing they'd ever encountered. I can't even imagine. The over 900 bodies all had to be taken to the base mortuary for identification, and in some cases, autopsy. The remains would eventually be stored on base in Hangar 1301 on Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. I mean, think of the transportation of those bodies. Oh, my God. It was insane. Yeah, that's just... There are just stacks and stacks of these metal coffins. 900-something people? My God. Mm Mm-hmm. So PTSD was not well understood in 1978 and was almost Mm. exclusively associated with the war, but these recovery workers, first responders, doctors, pathologists, typists, those uh, who were in charge of cleaning the transport containers, et cetera, were suffering emotional and psychological impacts from their recovery efforts, which I can only fucking imagine. No, oh my God, horrible. I can't, oh. So eventually the Air Force did a study on the impact the recovery had on military and civilian personnel revealing how complex the issue was. It is difficult to convey to someone what a week in a tropical environment can do to a dead human body. The overpowering and unforgettable odor of just one body is beyond imagination. Seeing three or four babies per body bag kept workers up at night. Oh my God. Yeah. That is just it's awful. Yeah. By April of 1979, more than 300 bodies of the followers had been claimed by family members, but over 500 bodies still remained at Dover Air Force Base unclaimed, while 200 were decomposed past the point of identification. Also, it cost nearly $500 for a family to bring their their loved one home for a private burial, which most of them couldn't afford. Right. So that's fucking terrible on top of it. Absolutely. But it gets worse because cemeteries refused to take remains, stating the communities did not want to become pilgrimage sites for Jones' remaining U.S. followers, drawing unwanted attention to their towns. Eventually, a cemetery in Oakland across the bay from the temple's former San Francisco home agreed to enter the remains of hundreds of the Jonestown dead. At least there's somewhere for them to go. So crazy. It's it's an insane story. It is an insane story. And you know, it's just like the fact that he, well, okay, let's, let's get this straight. At the end, a lot of people didn't want to do this. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
some of them were on board with it and they were on, they were down for it and they were like, yep, we're going to die for you, whatever. But a lot of people were questioning this shit, especially after the, the governor came or the uh, congressman came. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people were like, I don't fucking know about this, but not right. everybody was ballsy enough to try to leave with him. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got those, the red, what are they? Oh, the red brigade, the red brigade who has freaking crossbows psycho. I mean, what the hell? So if you even like step out of line, you're going to get shot in the middle of the freaking jungle and who's going to help you? No one. So you die this way, you die that way. You can't win. No, you can't. Yeah. And then look, the congressman comes to help and he gets shot 45 times, 47 times. Oh God. That's a lot. Yeah. It is a lot. There's no way out, you know, a hundred percent. And the fact that, you know, when they came, when like these families finally, or or all these people are finally brought back to the U S all these places are like, we don't want nothing to fucking do with this. You can't bury them here. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. Yes. Some of them did, but there's no way to know who did and who didn't. So just fucking like, these are human beings. They're humans. Yeah. And you know, the Guyanese government too was like, yeah, this is a shit show. Get it away from us. I mean, it's like, whew. Yeah, seriously. So here is part of that clip. I was to respect, die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. There's nothing to death. It's like Max that is just stepping over in another plane. Don't don't be this way. Stop this hysteric. This is not the way for people who are socialist to communists to die no way for us to die we must die with some dignity soon we'll have no choice now we have some choice you think they're going to allow this to be done and allow us to get by with it must be insane it's just something to put you to rest oh god It will not hurt if you'll be quiet. Yeah. And mother, 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 mother. What? Please. Like, cause those children sound hysterical. Hysterical. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a lot of them. We know there's 300 some, but those sound like babies and toddlers. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh God, it's awful. It's awful. It's a horrible, horrible story. Um, He's a horrible person. I mean, I felt bad for him as a child, but like, Everyone has the option to change their life around. And he went down just the shittiest path. All right. Well, thank you, Caitlin, for bringing us all of the um, facts of this horrific shit show and for watching the documentary. Because I bet that wasn't easy either, seeing all of that and hearing all of this. Yeah, it was kind of rough, but. um, But God, yeah. Well, thank you to Haley for requesting that we cover that yeah. one. Yeah, thanks, Haley. So cool. All right, All right. Well, we are going to move on to trivia. Trivia. Okay. So <laughs> last week's question was: What serial killer was said to have played a kind of hunt and kill game with his victims, releasing them into the wilderness and then hunting them down with a bow and arrow or a gun? Okay, I think that that's one of the most horrifying things. Terrible. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the answer was Robert Hansen and we had quite a few people answer correctly this week. Our correct answers were M underscore Randa 91, uh, 
Okay. Murder Mysteries and Meows. <laughs> uh, Ma 0718, Ken's Fisher, and Strawberry Cheesecake. Good job, guys. Good job, guys. Good job. Um, so our question this week is, oh boy, you guys ready for this? Who ground up their mother's voice box in a garbage disposal? Oh, just horrific. Horrific. Have fun, so, everyone. <laughs> send us your answers. Yes. DM, comment, whatever you would like to do, whatever works better for you. Um, let us know what you think. And also, of course, you know, as per usual, let us know what your thoughts are on Jim Jones. If you have... Yeah. Um, anything that you'd like to add or any, um, opinions that you'd like to throw out there, please send them our way. Absolutely. Also any cases that you guys are interested in hearing, please send them our way as well. The Peterson files and Jim Jones were both requests from listeners. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we are, we're going to, we're going to try to get them all out there. There's been a few more recent cases that a few people have requested that we cover, um, which we will cover them eventually, but sometimes when they're more recent, there's not as much information out there that you can get on it. So we just want a little bit more time for more information to come out so that we can really do the case justice. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, check out our website, everybody. Uh, Don't get in the van podcast.com has everything. If you don't know our listening sources, they're there. So it's a one-stop shop, blogs, merch, all that stuff. And yeah, answer our trivia question. You can win some goodies and we'll be um, bringing some new merch ideas to you shortly. So Mm -hmm. I know we say it every week, but they really are coming. They're coming. It's taking longer than expected. Well, yeah, Um, but it does take a while. It's okay. And those of you who have purchased merch or are waiting on your... um, little goodie pack for answering five questions in a row. They are coming. I apologize. It's taking a little longer than I expected. I've been in the middle of moving and going back and forth. So I just haven't had a chance to run to the post office, but they are coming. You guys are coming so much for your continued support. We really appreciate everybody listening in every week. Oh, and a little shout out here. Oh, we were, what number were we? 42. So we were number 42 on Mexico's true crime podcast (laughs) on Apple podcast. So thank you guys so much for listening. And, um, that's amazing. So maybe we can get onto the U S podcast charts charts as well. That would be really awesome. Absolutely. Super, super exciting. So thank you everyone in Mexico. Thank you everyone everywhere else who's listening. We really appreciate your support for sure. All right. All right. Well, as always, Remember, don't Don't get get in the the van. van.